Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, November 28th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writers Y. Trambui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, we, we, we got a bunch of news to talk about today, so let's just jump into it. Uh, let's talk about uh, something I was alluding to yesterday on the podcast, and that is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The uh, first reactions and reviews hit over the last 24 hours after we recorded the podcast, and uh, it, it seems like people really love this thing. HT, tell us about it. Yeah, so the embargo for the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse reviews broke this uh, morning, and critics are universally raving about this film, some calling it the best superhero movie in past decade, the best superhero movie this year, and possibly one of the best Spider-Man movies uh, ever. So this is um, a movie that's getting just raves for its stunning animation and its uh, ability to evoke the comic book art style and do and re, fully realize that into something that that we haven't really seen before on the big screen. Um, Indiewire's David Ehrlich, who notoriously dislikes superhero movies, begrudgingly <laughs> admitted that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse completely reinvigorates the genre. And you see a lot of that sort of grumbling from other critics who say, this is actually a good superhero movie, despite you know their, their dislike of the uh, glut of superhero movies uh, today. Um, Brian Truitt from USA Today calls it this year's best animated film. Um, Alex Abad Santos from Vox says that it makes Spider-Man feel original again. And um, uh, Susanna Polo from Polygon says it brings the exuberance of comic books to life. And I, I, of course, also saw this movie, as I alluded to. I, I do think, you know, I went into this not really expecting much. And uh, I I really think this is the best comic book movie this year, which is not a, a, a hard thing. I mean, it's not an easy thing to say. This year we had Black Panther. We had Infinity War. Um, we had Venom. 
but I, I think it's not only one of the best superhero. It is. I don't think it's not only the best superhero film this year. Not only is this the best animated film this year in a year that The Incredibles 2 came out. Like, uh, not that I loved Incredibles 2, but like if you had told me. I don't know. It's just shocking to me. And uh, also, I, I think this is one of my favorite films of the year. Like, it's it's really up there. It, it's it's everything that I think you read from the other critics. Uh, it's so visually exciting. It's irreverent. Uh, it's hilarious. Uh, it, the, 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 the characters and heart that this film has, I think, would make Stanley proud. Um, I came home from this movie and downloaded marvel unlimited and paid for that service just so i could uh i think i talked about it on the water cooler but i, I read through uh, you know over a dozen issues of the brian michael bendis uh comic book series because i just did not want to uh you know i didn't want my experience with these characters to end with the credits like these characters are so good and it, it's so interesting too because like this movie is doing something which is like the opposite of what the MCU is doing in the opposite of everybody that's trying to emulate these cinematic universes. It's basically establishing all these characters from their own universes. This is the crossover event. And then hopefully if this is successful and, you know, if the news yesterday is any indication, we might get separate universes with separate characters to follow that are not connected in any way that are wholly interesting exciting and we're invested in and uh that to me is exciting the only downfall to this i think is with the success of venom and possibly the success of this i'm worried that what this could mean for sony's deal with disney over having spider-man in the mcu because i love having spider-man in the mcu but i'm i'm excited to see a spider gwen movie i'm excited to to see movies based on all these characters i i can't wait for you guys to see this movie i know i'm probably overhyping this film and I, I it might be because i went in with such low expectations but it's just it's just such a great great movie i uh i i i hope people don't um you know, don't go see it because it's just an you know it's just an animated movie. You know, like, I feel like people try to discount uh, animated features, and uh, this I I think you know, I, I, Spider Man Two was my favorite comic book movie of all time for quite some time, and I I'm not sure I'd have to see this movie again, but I think it might be better than Spider Man Two. So wow, yeah, high uh, praise, yeah, high praise. Um, how dare you set the bar so high, Peter? No, I know, I know. Now you guys are going to go into it like <laughs> expecting way too much and be like, it wasn't that good. No, this movie looks no, awesome. It looks yeah. incredible. So. I'm ready to love this yeah. movie. And I was, I was so ready to, I had my tweets, you know, ready to tweet out last night when the social embargo went up and I had not talked to any critics about this. So I was so ready to be like in the minority of people that like, was like, this is the one of the best movies of the year, but I was not in the minority, which is so shocking to me. And uh, I guess this is the one of the two times a year that I agree with David Elrichs. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Anyways, uh, let's move on to another bit of news that hit after we recorded yesterday. And that is that Netflix is developing a live action Cowboy Bebop series. Chris, tell us about it. Yes, uh, Cowboy Bebop, an anime that I have never seen because I've never seen any anime, is becoming a live-action <laughs> series on Netflix. Uh, the original creator is going to be a, a consultant, and uh, the writer of Thor Ragnarok, Christopher Yost, is writing the first episode. Um, 
it'll be interesting to see how this pans out because you know from what i understand of cowboy bebop the the style is what people love about it and obviously that style isn't really going to transfer over to live action so i, I don't really know how this will turn out do do we have anybody on the podcast that has watched cowboy bebop hd Hi. So I've actually only seen a few episodes and it was when I was really young, but um, it's by the same uh, creator, I think, as Samurai Champloo, and it has that similar uh, sort of genre bending bent to it. It's about a group of bounty hunters and um, in space. So it's, some, it's something that we've seen before in movies and TV and has become quite the popular uh, sort of um, story that has been taking place, especially after Guardians of the Galaxy uh, broke out. And actually hearing that the Thor Ragnarok screenwriter is attached. This kind of makes me more intrigued than I was because at the beginning I was like, oh God, another like potentially failed live action adaptation of a great anime series. Uh, but it has a similar sort of bonkers, gonzo tone to Thor Ragnarok. And it's just, it's so well done and so beautiful. And, um, and very like Western influence too with a really multicultural cast that I hope Netflix would you know, like stick to, but who knows? I just, I'm very skeptical of any and all live action adaptations of anime because they, it's a medium that is just not suited to being adapted to live action. Yeah. This is where I'm curious, HT, maybe you can chime in on this too. Um, I've mostly lived with Cowboy Bebop. I actually bought the complete series on Blu-ray recently because it's been recommended to me so many times. So maybe you'll get an update on that very soon. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah it, but it's, um, I know a lot of people who normally don't like anime like this show. A lot of people who say this is their first anime because I'm into anime. I know that um, the creator um, loves Western storytelling and pretty much set out to make a very Western anime, something that could appeal to Americans. So I think that because of that, this could be um, easier to translate than a lot of the more animes that are more built to be culturally specific to Japan. Yeah. But, but I do think between this and Evangelion coming to Netflix, which was announced yesterday, like really interesting time for people who like this stuff to, be, to have a Netflix account. I feel like they're really reaching out to those kinds of fans. I think they definitely are. And you're right. It's definitely it's a really great gateway anime for people who aren't into anime because it has uh, action and mature themes. It also deals with and it has it's not quite as as hard to get into as some other animes are so it's a good gateway one and um it, it it's so well done too so yeah i think that it possibly could translate well to live action i guess i'm being like convinced <laughs> over live on the air and podcast but for now we'll see my, my friend uh magician brian brushwood uh said on twitter he was like uh, responding to the criticism a lot of people were tweeting yesterday when this was announced that uh we already have a live action cowboy bebop it's called firefly and he basically <laughs> responded to that right we've been wanting more of that for decades how great is it that we have a chance to get more of that um so i don't know i i, I think uh, that's that's a positive spin on on that uh i'm not the biggest western person in in the in the world that's putting it lately <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering if i if i will enjoy this but um i, I will i will definitely check it out it seems like but netflix is but it's a space western peter and, yeah you know you have that with star wars that's more of like a space fantasy, I think. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I think I I I think the um, Firefly analogy is probably more on the the nose. It's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to the hate the Handmaid's Tale. Uh, we it, it was announced today that a sequel novel is coming from the original writer. HT, tell us about it. 
Yeah, so more than more than 30 years after the publication of The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood is working on a sequel. Uh, it's going to be called The Testaments. It's a sequel that will be set 15 years after the events of The Handmaid's Tale and will be narrated by three female characters. Uh, she didn't mention whether uh, Alfred, the main character from The Handmaid's Tale, would be one of these female characters, but considering it takes place many years afterwards, this will likely not be the case. Uh, so this uh, novel, The Testaments, will be published in fall of next year, uh, September 2019 to be specific. Uh, and it comes on the heels of The Handmaid's Tale season two, venturing beyond uh, the original book. The first season adapted the entirety of The Handmaid's Tale. And then its final scene was echoed the final the ending of The Handmaid's Tale as well, which was a very ambiguous ending and ended up not being ambiguous in the TV series. Uh, second season kind of suffered for that a little bit as they tried to like make strides beyond what Margaret Atwood created and ended up just kind of spinning their wheels a lot and just a lot of it was devolved into just emotional torture porn. So <laughs> we'll see if um, The Testaments ends up uh, playing into the Hulu series at any point. Perhaps Margaret Atwood will take inspiration from the series or perhaps vice versa. The series will be able to like fill in more gaps of the world uh, through The Testaments. Can I see a question, HD? Yes. Um, it's just me thinking out loud about how frustrated George R. R. Martin has been recently in the press about how the wind's out of his sails with, with the latest Song of Ice and Fire book because Game of Thrones is on, on TV is ending before him, before he can reach finish the books. Do you think that there's any uh, – what is the relationship between Margaret Atwood and the show right now? Could this be her reacting to the poor second season or am I reading into drama that does, that does not exist? I mean she's always been very supportive of the series and I remember when the – the first season first came out, she was doing a big speaking press tour and um, like was talking about the themes and how it was so timely and relevant today. I haven't seen her specific like personal reaction to season two. Um, I don't know if the outcry against season two, like, like, like the criticism season two were strong enough to reach her because it still earned several uh, awards and as, and like, continues being a highly acclaimed series but I wonder if maybe like the acclaim around that series is sort of um, making her like stoking her interest in revisiting that world so maybe it's not the fact that the series is having bad reviews but the fact that it's still getting so much acclaim and she wants to I don't know get her piece in very interesting. Well, well I, I'm assuming that Hulu is probably has a, a team of lawyers right now trying to negotiate the rights <laughs> to turn that into another uh, season of the show. Uh, but let's move on to Creed 2, which, as it turns out, according to, to Sylvester Stallone, uh, that that might be his last round or might not might be. He says that will be his last round as Rocky Balboa. Jacob, tell us about it. Yeah, so Mr. Stallone posted a video from the set of Creed 2, seemingly shot during production, but only being shared now, where uh, he says, This is probably my last rodeo because of what because uh, what I thought happened, it has happened. I never expected. I thought Rocky was over 2006, and I was very happy with that. And all of a sudden, this young man presented himself, and the whole story changed. And he goes on. He thanks uh, the director, Stephen Capel Jr. He thanks Michael B. Jordan. And he says, now you, Now you have to carry the mantle. And it very much seems like a Rocky retirement speech. He even has some text in his Instagram post that never quite uses the word I'm done with Rocky uh, or retirement, but it's very melancholy, very wistful, very much like he's ready to step away. And this makes sense. I mean, our own Bradford Omen, um, a.k.a. Ethan Anderton, I'm sorry, <laughs> wrote a uh, 
Uh, second half of this article, you can read on Slashdown.com, where he argues why Rocky leaving the Creed franchise is the right choice and why it's the right thing to happen after Creed 2. I've heard, I've heard other sentiments echoed amongst other writers and other fans of the series about how it's time for Creed to escape the shadow of Rocky, and especially since Creed 2 is so indebted to Rocky 4. It's time for Creed to create his own stories. I personally thought that we'd see Rocky return one more time so he can die on screen in season yeah. three like Mickey did in Rocky 3. But maybe him passing away between movies is uh, the best way to like truly let Adonis Creed and Michael B. Jordan take full control. Uh, what do you guys think? I, I thought for sure that's where they were heading because in uh, Creed 1, they introduced the storyline where it is revealed that Rocky has cancer. And then in Creed 2, there's like one offhanded line that's like, Remember Rocky when Rocky had cancer and I was there for him? <laughs> it was like, what? You just like got over <laughs> cancer? Uh, I guess Rocky beat cancer. But um, uh, I don't know. I, I felt like that would have been the way to go to have like an emotional death of some kind and not have it happen off screen in between movies. Uh, Chris H.C., do you have any thoughts? Uh, I, I, I'm fine with this. I, I feel like I, the end of, of Creed 2 pretty much wraps up Rocky as a character. Like he gets an emotional closure and he, you know, he like the movie literally closes the door on his character. So I could see that working. And uh, I agree that for this series to continue, it really needs to get out of the, the Rocky shadow. Like the reason the first Creed was so great is that it felt it didn't feel indebted to, to Rocky. It felt like it was set in the same universe, but it was its own movie. And Creed 2 feels very much just like a Rocky sequel. So I'd like them to get back to being a film set in the universe, but not really a Rocky sequel. And I think this is the way to do it. I also agree. Uh, let's move on to Jordan Peele's Candyman reboot. We found out who is going to be directing this uh, this film. Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yes, Nia DaCosta is a, is going to direct the film. She uh, made an indie film called Little Woods, which is yet to be distributed. And uh, she's directing. Jordan Peele is going to uh, write the script, and it's it's both going to it's it seems to be taking the the Halloween route, where it's both a sequel and a reboot. So it, it's bringing Candyman into the you know the 21st century while also continuing story that uh took place in the film in in 1992 and this is very cool i I think the the first candy man is uh almost a perfect movie almost a perfect horror movie at least it's it's phenomenal i i just rewatched it because scream factory put out a new blu-ray and it, it it's it's even better now than it was in the 90s it's just so classy and elegant and not at all like you know a slasher movie, which it sometimes gets lumped into. It's just a, it's in a league of its own, and uh, I'm excited that Jordan Peele is involved with this sequel. I'm excited that it has a female director, just because there's this stigma that uh, Jason Blum contributed to, to saying there aren't a lot of female horror directors, and there are, they just don't get the opportunity. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about everything involved with this. I'm looking forward to it. So the one thing I'm unclear about is, is this a sequel or is this a remake? Is it a reboot? Is it a legacy equal? What What is this? I'm. Uh, it, they're calling it a spiritual sequel. So it's set in the same neighborhood as the first film in Chicago. So I'm guessing, like I said, it's going to be sort of like Halloween, where they're they're going to ignore the other two, other sequels. There were two Candyman sequels; they're both terrible. Uh, I mean, 
The second one is actually okay. The third one is awful. But uh, I think they're just going to ignore all that and just sort of continue the story from the first one. And uh, all the living characters in the first one are, are dead, so they don't really need to bring them back. So I think it's just going to be Candyman is the, is the connection between the original and this new one. Yeah. Uh, uh, hey, H- I know HT reviewed um, the director's movie um, earlier this year, Little Woods. So I know you haven't seen Candyman HT, but do you have any thoughts on her as a director? I am really excited to see where she goes as a director because Little Woods is phenomenal. I saw it at Tribeca and it was my favorite film that I saw there. And I'm really shocked that it doesn't have a distributor distributor yet because it stars Tessa Thompson, Lily James as two sisters. And Tessa Thompson in particular gives this wonderful powerhouse role. Uh, It's sort of this haunting neo-Western that in some ways recalls movies like Hell or High Water. And it's it's just a it's really weary and quiet and um, very wonderfully directed. And I just I I do think though, because a lot of the plot revolves around an abortion, that that might be why distributors are sort of um, keeping away from it. But it's it's a great film, and it, it would be a shame if uh, it never got to see the light because it's it's so good and both Lily James and Tessa Thompson at the top of their game in this in this film um so I don't know I'm not sure how her skills would apply to a horror film uh because it seems like a genre her little woods its genre is kind of outside of that realm but she's a great director and she has a skill for like I think little woods was her directorial debut too so she has something great coming out of the gate for sure. Um, let's move on to All the Boys I've Loved Before. Uh, the hit Netflix uh, movie is getting a sequel. HT, I know you're a big fan of this. Tell us about it. I am. I, did, I was doing a little dance just now because I'm very <laughs> excited about this sequel. Um, so To All the Boys I've Loved Before is uh, in develop. Uh, sequel is in development at Netflix. Um, Netflix is currently negotiating a new multi-picture deal with Paramount that would include the sequel to to All the Boys I Loved Before, um, which they had originally purchased from another uh, company. It was made by Awesomeness, which Viacom had acquired in August. So the movie will retain the Awesomeness banner, but will be made under in collaboration with Netflix and Awesomeness. Um, we should say, like, can you tell us what to all the boys I've loved before is for those listening who I assume a big majority probably haven't seen this film? <laughs> So To All the Boys I've Loved Before is a sugary sweet and incredibly rewatchable teen rom-com that stars uh, Lana Condor and Noah Centineo. Uh, It launched both of them into sort of the new teen heartthrob status, particularly Noah Centineo, who's become kind of the, the young upstart that is like the face of Netflix sweethearts, heartthrobs in general. So um, it stars Condor as a teenager who's kind of socially closed off and spends her days writing love letters to that she'll never send to her crushes. But one day after those love letters accidentally get sent out, she ends up starting a fake relationship with one of their recipients, uh, played by Noah Centineo, and they naturally fall in love because it's rom-coms and everything is great. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a sweet and fun and 
just warm-hearted film that, yes, I have rewatched several times and has uh, great starring turns in both Condor and Centineo. Centineo, in particular, reminds me of a young Mark Mark Ruffalo in this film, and I would be really happy if both of them starred in a movie at some point. But um, so this, this is actually adapting the first in a series of novels by Jenny Han. Um, the uh, series follows the sort of romantic entanglements of Lara Jean. And the second would likely adapt P.S. I Still Love You, which kind of spelled some troubles in the air for our sweet couple. Uh, hopefully oh, it no. will make us hate the beautiful Noah Centineo and his wonderful square jaw. So <laughs> <laughs> who knows? I mean, well, uh, it's very exciting that the sequel is happening, and both Lana Condor and Noah Centineo have confirmed that they would love to uh, join in for a, se- a second round. Are, are like, are you worried that this could taint that original film, or are you just like all in? I'm all in. I think that um, it's. I'm sure it'll it'll be and and happily ever after, as many rom coms do, and um, I don't think it'll taint the original just as much as it might, you know, introduce some new. Uh, wrinkles into the heartthrob that is Peter Kavinsky, played by Noah Centineo. Very cool. Okay, we have a little bit of bad news and a little bit of good news. I'll give you the good news first. The good news is that YouTube is going to be making all of its original content f- available for free in 2019. The bad news is they're tapping their brakes on scripted shows like Cobra Kai uh, and all that stuff that they were developing. Jacob, tell us about it. Uh, yes, yesterday YouTube announced uh, that they'll be taking all their YouTube originals, all the stuff that was previously only available behind the YouTube premium paywall, and making it available uh, next year, 2019, uh, with ad-supported versions. So YouTube premium still exists, but instead of uh, – you can choose to watch Cobra Kai with ads instead of paying the monthly fee and getting it with no ads. However, this news was coupled with, as Peter said, the announcement that they're going to be – Focusing less on scripted shows like Cobra Kai uh, and like other like Origin and other shows that debuted over the past year, and making more uh, reality and celebrity focused shows, um, uh, i.e., cheaper productions. Yeah, cheaper. Pretty much, I think that what you can read between the lines here and between all the business speak is that it sounds like YouTube Premium did not light the world on fire. I think YouTube users are more used to like pop in YouTube, watch it for free, and the the idea of paying for it monthly like we do for Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon Prime is hasn't quite caught on yet and i wrote about this at length in the article you can check it out for my full thoughts but i'll summarize them here which is that this is bad news because cobra kai is a show people like and there's a another there was another platform for writers and artists and storytellers to have a place to go um uh the bad the good news is that people can now go watch cobra kai they can go watch these shows they're really readily available uh the good news is that um they're going to focus on more homegrown YouTube talent now with this money. And I can think of a lot of YouTubers whose work I admire. Like, for example, like I was thinking about this randomly yesterday, Peter. If YouTube is serious about like taking their, their money and, and investing less in um, uh, scripted shows and like putting it toward the creators, I mean, for every Logan Paul who's a freaking nightmare, there's someone like the Tim Tracker, who you, who you and I both watch. And imagine yeah. if YouTube gave a budget to Tim Tracker, who does uh, theme park videos, so he can travel more and go to more unique places and take his unique style and make it a more polished show where he goes beyond you know, his, his one uh, uh, little sphere of theme park coverage. So I think about that like, yeah, Cobra Kai is a good show, but it could be a good show on any network, whereas YouTube has access to 
this mountain, mountains upon mountains of niche um, entertainers who can do incredible work if they would invest in them. But at the same time, the downside is that this probably also means more freaking Logan Paul. So what do you, what do you think, Peter? I, I watch a lot of YouTubers now, and I don't think any of them have a following big enough for YouTube to to make a deal with them for this kind of a, you know unscripted show. Uh, I think you're right. It's probably going to mean like people like Logan Paul are going to float up to the top of the, the toilet bowl. And, and um, I... I don't know. Like, we know that the future of television is streaming, and we know that you know Disney and Netflix are going to be the big uh, fish in that pond. And with YouTube getting out of scripted television, that like just makes that pond, you know, there's less competition. And I do, I, I do agree with you that Cobra Kai could have been a Netflix show. It could have, you know, been another network. Uh, but with less competition, that's you know, we've we've talked about that in the past. It's it's not good for everyone when, when there's less competition. But on the other side of things, like you say, you know, uh, maybe it'll give some fresh. Maybe the 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 next big movie stars are from YouTube, which is kind I of. I keep I keep on thinking like you spend twenty million dollars on a season of TV. I'm I'm just throwing it out there. But what if you took that and gave five hundred thousand dollars to forty creators who have modest followings and then promoted the hell out of them with their new more highly produced shows. I mean, I'm, I'm not YouTube. I'm not YouTube expert, you know, but I'm wondering if maybe that's the way to go. You find the people who have strong, who have modest followings, but maybe not the production values to have a full fledged show. And you give them enough money, more money than they've ever worked with in their lives for, for a, a show. And you start getting, instead of one season of high gloss prestige TV, you get 40 new shows that are, that appeal to a smaller group, but make that group very happy. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It will also be interesting to see what happens to like shows like Cobra Kai, which, you know, they already have filmed the second season and that has not debuted. And I guess that's going to debut in 2019 on for free on YouTube with ads. Uh, but I'm, I'm assuming that those ads on YouTube are not going to be enough to pay for the budget of that show. So I'm really curious to see what will happen to the future of a show like that. Will, you know, does that mean it's going to be you know do, will they not have the money to do a season three or will like a network like uh netflix come along and uh save it like they have you know many times before uh it'll be interesting um let's move on to our last and final story and this is um i guess a little bit of a spoiler for uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Uh, I'm going to play for you a clip from my interview, which we published last week, uh, be- that I, I was interviewing the filmmakers, uh, Phil Johnson and Rich Moore and producer Clark Spencer. And I was talking about a uh, big part of the marketing for this movie was this scene involving this mobile game, uh, this pancake milkshake mobile game, where they're serving these pancakes to a bunny, and then there's a cat who drinks the milkshakes. It was uh, probably the focus of a lot of the trailers, aside from you know that big uh, Disney princess sequence. And uh, if you actually go into any Disney stores, uh, you know t- there's T-shirts with these characters. There's like the if you buy the Wreck-It Ralph and Vanellope figures, they come with the bunny and the cat and the milkshake and the, the the pancake like it's a big part of the thing and uh it didn't end up in the actual movie now uh th- that gets to spoilers uh so if you haven't watched 
Ralph breaks the internet. Uh, you might want to tune out now. Uh, yeah, so there's your chance. But basically, it didn't make the movie, but they ended up putting it in the end credits. It did get a place in the movie after all. And here's me talking with the filmmakers about how that came to be. Can you talk about Pancake Milkshake? Because th- that was such a phenomenon with the, the trailers and the marketing. And I'm guessing, if I were to guess, it, it had a place in the movie at some Definitely, point. Yeah. Can you tell us like what the original purpose was? Well, it was, was one of the, the online games that they visited when they were loot hunting after they met Spamly. Uh, and, um, and that section got really long, you know, where it was like, we just need to get to slaughter race and trying to get shanks car you know we're we're spending too much time in this beat that really has nothing to do with the story everyone gets what loot hunting is you know we don't have to kind of show it um but you had this trailer out there that people yeah so so pancake milkshake was one of the first things that we animated too you know so it was finished as a complete thing and it (laughs) ended up in the people that make our trailers were like oh we want to use this in the trailer like great uh, so it's in the trailer, <laughs> and then suddenly it's like that's when we hit that point where it's like that we need to cut it. You know, it's we can't keep it in just because it's in the trailer. And people were saying, "Well, but they're making the plush and the Funko figures." Well, I'm sorry, but it's I mean it's a case of like if it is not serving the story, we can't keep it in there. Um, so then Phil was the one who had the idea of like. What if we make it an end credit scene, you know, kind of a post credit scene? And it's a joke yeah. about that the little girl in the car, you know, is upset that it wasn't in the movie. And it just leads right into the mom saying, oh, play your game. That'll make you feel better. And then we have, you know, the yeah. scene as it was. And I, I love that because I'm the guy that, like, watches all the trailers. And yeah. I'm like, that scene was not I'm in the movie. the same way. Yeah. It drives Absolutely. me crazy. Absolutely. It drives, I remember when Empire Strikes Back came out, there was <laughs> one shot in the trailer of C-3PO in, at Hoth in the Rebel base ripping a sign off of a door. And I'm like... What is that? I gotta see that. That's something very special, you know. And it never appeared in the movie. And through the whole thing, I was like, maybe at the end they will go back to Hoth and we will see that. But yeah, that drives me insane. So there you have it. I'm sure our own David Chen of the Slash Filmcast is happy to hear that because uh, I know he often gets upset over, you know, scenes and shots and trailers and the marketing that doesn't make the actual movie itself. Uh, I, I was wondering what you guys think. Like, it does it bother you when you see a, you know, shot in the trailer that isn't in the actual film? Not in the slightest, not in any way whatsoever, because once I'm in that theater, the trailer just ceases to matter, only the movie matters, and um, the marketing is what got me there, but if the movie delivers on its own terms, whether those shots in there or not, it really doesn't matter. I can't care less, <laughs> honestly. What about you, H.J.? Yeah, it doesn't particularly matter to me either. I, I think I'm aware at this point that the marketing and the movie are two different beasts. And often marketing is made while the movies are sometimes still being cut. So it's not particularly a big deal for me unless it drastically um, is drastically different from uh, the movie I was advertised sometimes. Uh, so it's like it's more of a point of curiosity yeah. for me than anything that really offends me. Chris, how about you? 
Yeah, I, I, it only bothers me in really extreme circumstances. Like one that specifically bothers me is Rogue One, which had, <laughs> I think like 90% of that initial trailer isn't actually in the movie because they had all those reshoots and I wanted to see the movie that was in that trailer and what I got was completely yeah. different and I didn't like it. So it's only when it's really extreme like that. Yeah. Mm. I also think though that there are times when like, you know, a Deadpool two, that there was stuff in that trailer that was just there to, uh, you know, make you think that something else happens in the movie and it actually is helping your enjoyment, like helping uh, not spoil you to the, the surprises of the film. And I, I actually love when that happens. I, I wish more uh, filmmakers would do that. I am glad that they were able to find a place for this in the movie somewhere because literally, you know, if you walk into any Disney store, like there is like I would say like 30 percent of the rec- uh, the Ralph Breaks the Internet merchandise features like, you know, th- these two characters and the milkshake uh, pancake stuff. Uh, so I, I think they would have gotten like completely roasted if it didn't show up in the movie at all um but it 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 was a fun uh end credit scene nonetheless but that brings us to the end of today's slash film daily ht where can people find more your work online you can find me every day at slash film.com and i'm on twitter at htranbui chris where can we find you also slash film.com and i'm on twitter at c evangelista 413 jacob where can we find you I am also on SlashFilm.com, and surprise, surprise, but I'm on Twitter where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. You can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about today, including HT's review that we mentioned in the show notes. Uh, you can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, or if you're looking for life advice from our own Chris, uh, send it to peter at slashfilm.com. And uh, please leave your name, general geographic location, in case we mention the email on the air. And uh, please also go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.